Sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I'm excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Mike Drapeau. He's a partner at SBI. And uh, among his other responsibilities, head of SBI's internal talent development, and he maintains, develops, leverages their library of emerging best practices, and we're going to talk about some of that. Mike, welcome to Accelerate. Thank you very much, Andy. I look forward to it, and I'm ready for your questions, whatever they may be. Oh, well, first one's an easy one. Just uh, sort of flesh out that bare bones introduction I gave. Give us a little bit of your background. How'd you get into sales? How'd you end up where you are? Oh, gosh. Well, I have maybe something of an eclectic background. Uh, I spent 13 years in the United States Navy uh, doing all sorts of different crazy things, uh, but finishing up my time up the Mediterranean with the SEAL teams. And after that, I was a consultant uh, working in the re-engineering world, if you remember back that in the early 90s. And mm-hmm. then that led me to uh, a dot-com, which uh, for the time I was there didn't implode, uh, but then, after, then afterwards was purchased and did, this, uh, did a great swan dive, but benefited from that experience. We, we all have those on our, our yes, indeed. So. I have a whole room wallpaper with that stock. <laughs> yeah, I do too. <laughs> several, several of those, as a matter of fact, several rooms. <laughs> oh, I only have one. Well, thanks be to God. So, and from there, went to EMC Corporation, which was just reaching a sort of a, its height as the go-go sales force. Mm-hmm. And there, I think I arrived, we were something like $250 million, give or take a penny, and I left at $3 billion and um, rode that rocket ship. And frankly, that was really where I learned, got, kind of got my bona fides in uh, high energy, high acting, complex selling, highly competitive market, big big ticket items, et cetera. And out of that, I then started my own company, which was an IT services company of all things, because I had the technology background and the sales mm-hmm. background. Mm-hmm. So I ran that and it was successful, but not as successful as I wanted it to be. And, and then I had always stayed in contact with Greg Alexander and we met at AMC. And he had started a company, Sales Benchmark Index, and about a couple months after it started, he and his, my, his partner, Aaron Bartels, offered me partnership, which at the time, uh, the company was you know, two people and then making three people in a garage with just a few clients, right. shall we say. And um, that's uh, over 11 years ago. And uh, really riding the rocket ship since then has been the most profoundly enjoyable professional experience I've had. Well, it really has. 
All right. Gosh, I, I mean, how often you get people to sort of say that? It's profoundly entertaining and enjoying, oh, yeah. enjoyable. Everything. Every single year is totally different. And uh, we've managed in, in 10 straight years to record 30% CAGR every, each and every year. We've always done it differently. That's what's fun about it. It's not like it's sort of a mandatory same, same thing. It's quite, quite different each and every time. So that's what keeps it fresh. All right. So... You said mentioned SEAL team. So were you actually, did you go through the SEAL training? I did not. I was not part of BUDS. Um, my job was combat logistics. So I provided sort of, I'm the person that puts the beans, the guns, and the bullets to places where they need to be so they can make use of them. So, Very interesting. Very interesting. So wow. close enough to, the, to fire, to feel the warmth, <laughs> but not enough to be, to be touched by the flame. Right. So. And close enough that you can't talk about it. Indeed. Indeed. Okay. So we were going to talk about hiring and onboarding sales because, and maybe we'll take a step back and even think about, you know, what they did at EMC, maybe that you learned there about was, was good to help them sort of their go-go. But, but you talk first of all about the fact that companies need to have a talent strategy in place. So Indeed. what is, what is a talent strategy? I, I rarely hear companies talk about, gosh, we have a talent strategy. They may have a hiring strategy, but not a talent strategy. Absolutely. Well, for us, and we see this, uh, one of the things SBI uh, has created, our framework is called the RGM, the Revenue Growth Methodology, and that's built around the three pillars of growth, which is marketing, sales, and product. And what we realized a long time ago that the performance equation is 50% talent, 50% performance conditions for any company. And that applies across all the different business functions, especially the three growth functions. And we realized people didn't have this, as you said, they didn't have a talent strategy. And so they were constantly underperforming, even with the best of expectations, the perfect process, the most well-designed program with the great strategy and all the intentions, and yet they would underperform. And they realized that was talent. And talent, as you said, is not just sort of let's dump everything, hire the best recruiters and hire the best people and have them walk in the door. You need to think about everything from onboarding to um, talent development, coaching, apprenticeship, sort of all the piece parts that touch on talent. And it's not something you want to dump off onto sort of the HR person, the mandatory person mm. who dragged, dragged and kicking and screaming, right. doesn't know the business of the people, graduated from their HR program, whatever it might be. And, and they sort of get uh, shoved uh, to their front plate and on their desk, all of the nasty bits of right. talent. And what's forgotten is that, so the HR person becomes the person who has to, has to fire, has to deal with all the difficult things, but right. isn't thought of as a strategic asset of the firm. And we realized uh, both for ourselves and also for our clients that having that talent strategy, recognizing that 50% of the equation is the people, but not just hiring them, but making sure they were successful was the key to success. And so we created a, a, a whole stem to stern talent strategy to execute against that. Well, I'm, I like the word talent. So when people put their talent strategy in place, I mean, how much of it is, you know, I know there's all these other components we'll get to about onboarding and so on, but mm -hmm. identifying inherent or latent talents, either one, in prospective candidates. I mean, it's, it seems like we don't use that word very often. No, I mean, there's, uh, there's some, actually some great books written um, about the whole concept of talent potentiality. Um, there's a guy named, what's his name here? I've got this book right in front of me, Elliot Jacques, who's written a bunch about that. And we've taken some of his, uh, his concepts embedded in ours. And also uh, the good folks, Reed Hoffman at LinkedIn, who wrote a book called The Alliance, right. which we have embedded into our, and we, we're sort of a, we take, we try to do our very best to take some of the great ideas out there um, and, and, and embed them in our organization, sort of put them through the SBI filter and, and embrace them. And we've done this with those ideas. And for us, 
it's when we when we create a new role, when we source an existing role, we're looking not just for the the person who's who's been there and done that. We're looking for the combination. Yes, there's a little bit of need to show that you've done it, but also potentiality. What is their willingness for us? We have a an attribute we call STL, sacrifice tolerance level, and it's a way we measure someone's ability to truly integrate their personal professional life together, but do so with understanding that, look, you're going to have to walk in the door humble because we don't have a talent curve. We have a talent cliff. And if you're going to be able to climb that cliff, the first thing you have to do is recognize that you don't know everything about everything. And we're hiring you for your potential, not for your actual, not for what you've done, for what you could do. And it's really kind of hard. It's kind of a conundrum. Well, so yeah, let's, well, let's go back to, I love the, the term, the sacrifice tolerance level. Yep. So how do you measure that? Well, different, a little bit differently for each individual position, sure. right? And and there's a series of questions we asked to sort of tease out what they were willing to sacrifice. Did they know what they were sacrificing for? We mix in some elements of Clayton Christensen in that, which was really good at showing people, hey, you say you want to get to this particular thing in the future, but all the steps you're taking now are not taking you there. So either you need to change your end state or you need to change what you're doing in between, but you need to recognize fundamentally that you're going in a different direction than you say you want. Okay, so you're looking for congruence behind what they state they want to do and actually what they're doing. Exactly. And even more than that, what they're doing, but what did you, what did you, 10 years ago, what did you want to be? What, what was your objective and how did you get there? And if they stumble and mumble and fumble, we, we're, what we recognize is they, they can't simultaneously do long-term and short-term thinking. And we're looking for somebody because we take, we want to hire somebody for a long time. We want to hire them and know that they're going right. to be with us well because it is a tremendous as I said, it's a cliff to learn how to sure. be a great employee. So, and for and then for us, we're climbing with them. So it isn't just, hey, look, here's a here's a um, here's a pick, and here's a couple of shoes. Right. Have a nice day. I'm going right up the the wall with them. Right. And so we want to make sure when they get to the top of the cliff, we enjoy that success, that plateau before they tackle the next cliff. I mean, do you use a a uh, you know, third party assessment tool or something to help you with that? I mean, it's it's. I mean, it's an interesting term, and I, I like it because I think that you know one of the things that seems to be missing so often in salespeople is the willingness to sacrifice. And I mean, we look at just self 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 learning as an example, right? As is, Absolutely. you know, you interview a sales rep and you say, okay, what's the last sales book you read in the last thirty days? Well, <laughs> yeah, oftentimes it's just a blank stare. Let alone you say, okay, last year. Yep. So getting sales reps to make that investment, sometimes on their own personal time. Is really difficult. So uh, to me, I, like I said, I really like that approach. Sure. So we we so so one of the things we recognized a while back ago is even as we're we're approaching people that are sort of in a current job and are looking for a job, and they get interested, um, one of the ways we test for this is the the length and the depth of our pre hire process. We have a lot of steps to go through, and each step is quite different, and they're value add, and they're all part of the mutual discernment process. So for example, we have an extraordinarily robust job trial that's role specific. So, which you have in your own company, which we have for our own company. We actually do it for our clients as and well. You do it for your clients. So that's what's going to get you. So Absolutely. you recommend that they do that. Is sort of try to buy. It's the single greatest determinant that separates because you do it typically do it late in the interview process. And so what it does is it doesn't it doesn't separate your B from your C players. It separates that gaggle of B plus players from the A players. And so, the, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, so a B player can pretty much well stick handle their way around an interview process right. and, get to, and get to that final three. The job trial will smoke them out. Okay, and good, so, good, hockey, so good that's, hockey analogy. I was thank like, you very was, much. And so when you're talking about uh, what the job trial is and sort of the try to buy, so 
explain what you mean. So how do you, how do you construct that? Cause I mean, it's sort of problematic if you're, especially if you're recruiting somebody for another job, they own a job, you know, they're in a specific job right now is saying, yeah, we want you to come spend 30 days to see if you're the right candidate or not. Well, it's not 30 days on site, if you will, but, but you are right. And you, you started this question asking, how do we, how do we test for STL? Well, okay. You're in your job now and you're doing well at it. I'm sure you are. And here's an extra 10 hours a week for the next three weeks. And, and by the way, even even if you're not going to get a job offer from us, or even if you're going to decide you're not going to you're not going to want to come to us, it's going to be time well spent. It'll help you in a job, etc. But by the way, it's going to take you every bit of the 30 hours, and you better bring your A game. And they'll say, you know what? I'm not interested. Okay, great. That's a great STL comment right away. Uh, and we take a while to fall in love. So if they want to stretch it out over a little bit, that's fine. You know, so- but. What type of things do you have them do for that 10 hours a week, let's say? Well, it's, it's, it's role I dependent. It's specific, but I mean, yeah. let's say for a sales rep, let's say one of your clients, yeah, if you're recommending they do that, what would you say they, they should do for yeah, like so you, it's, it's a combination. So you might say, okay, you, there's a scenario. You're a, you're a sales rep for us, and here's your scenario. And it's a pretty robust scenario with a lot of detail in it, and you have to prepare for an event. Let's say the event is some form of a presentation to a, a gaggle of people. Typically, it is a, it's a presentation to a, to a multiple group of people right. at a client site, let's say. Okay. And then, um, and then you, you give them, what are the rubrics of the presentation? What are the expectations? They have, they have a, uh oh, sorry, I got a call there. We got a set of, there's a set of um, questions they get to ask. So you're testing for their initial insight. Right. How good are they at determining what was bogus information or inconsequential for consequence of where were the gaps in the story that you gave them? Then you test that, you provide them the answers that they're asking for, and you give them uh, answers that are not in, uh, perfect like the answers you typically sure. get in a client scenario, right? right. Imperfect answers. Partial then, answers, right. Partial answers, right. Uh, and so then they then have to then develop in whatever they're going to present to you in whatever scenario. And then we test them with a multi-person, every, everyone playing a different role as though they would be at a client site, let's say. Do a role play. And do a role play. It- You'll do that remotely if need be or, or virtually? Yeah, if, well, it's, we're a virtual company. So sure. we have people throughout the United States. And if there's somebody close by, yes. If not, it's entirely virtual with video as well. So you sure. want to see that as well. You want to see their expressions and how they play the crowd and so on. Right. And then everybody plays a role. So you're, going, you're looking for, are they approaching you in your role? Are they treating everybody the same? Do they understand um, what the, the different perspectives are of those roles and how to address them in the context of whatever you're presenting. Mm-hmm. And you punch them in the head as many times as possible, <laughs> see how they respond. And, and then well, the, see if they take coaching. Exactly correct. Yeah, well, I think coachability is where we left off. Is, you know, it's a key thing, I think, that companies too often overlook is they don't actually test to see if the people they're hiring accept coaching. Exactly correct. And that's, that's all part of it. So we're, we're, we subject them to the rigors of not just what the client will do, but what we will do as they prepare for and, and complete an evolution. And so in that process, the potential future employee gets to see, do I like this? Do I like these people? Do I like working with a client that's going to punch me in the mouth? Mm-hmm. You know, did I enjoy that preparation and right. follow through execution process? Very interesting. So, yeah. And then we also, if you're going to be a consultant, we'll send you through much more detailed analytical training to test those particular skills. And then we, we put place a big emphasis on things like empathy. So for us, empathy is a core differentiator in how we interact with our clients. Mm-hmm. And um, there are ways to test for that, you know, and, and um, everything oh, from, you uh, well, you might ask the waiter to spill the soup on your, on your potential employee in a restaurant, see how they react. <laughs> you know, 
I mean, and that sounds silly, but it's it's profoundly sure, effective. Sure, right? Exactly. What what are they? What how do they deal with a stressful situation with somebody that they? Uh, so that's 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 a that spontaneous planned accident uh, is is sometimes insightful. Yeah. Next time I go to lunch, I'm gonna be careful. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. If you're looking for a job, be be on your guard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, I like that. I mean, that's that's a very clever. But I think that the thing in general that we're talking about, which is the part that so many companies you know, don't do and they need to think about is, is they don't test, right? They develop a, a set of specifications or a definition for a particular role, what their expectations are, and then they don't put the candidate through the process to validate and verify they can actually do what, what they want done. It's amazing. And it's so often, not so often, oftentimes, we run into that very same thing. I mean, whole HR departments who are spun up that are supposed to be ensuring this, and they don't. It just they're sort of going through the motions of, I got this interview, I got that interview, and they don't ever really create the conditions that determines. And it's not just from the, from the company's perspective. It's also from the employee's perspective. Because they need to know whether or not they're going to enjoy this. And that's a lot of times where you have people that sour on a company or positions because, gosh, I never knew I was going to do this, that, and the other. And Exactly. That's why you need a job trial, especially for anything that's touching revenue. You know, that's, that's the key. Customer facing, for sure. Customer right? facing, exactly correct. Yeah, I had one, one client where we were hiring a VP of sales and, you know, we wanted the, they were going to do some new market entry strategies at a couple of key markets and they wanted to see the sense of the, the candidates thinking about how they would go about this task. Yep. And so they narrowed down to, I don't know, four final candidates that they gave this to. And, you know, Two of the four just said, you're asking me for consulting. <laughs> you know, I'm not, why don't you pay me for this work? As opposed to like, uh, yep. dude, no, this is, this is where you're going to show whether you can do the job. Yeah, and that's, they, just, they, uh, they, just, they just sort of walked themselves out of the job. By making that comment, they've saved everybody all the time and effort necessary. They're not the right person. Yeah. So what do you see as sort of the key reason why companies seem to settle for less than A players? I, first of all, there's a limited inventory of A players. I understand that. But yep. but. It seems like companies settle too often. This is one of my frustrations. I work with clients or, you know, talk to groups and they're complaining about their sales team. It's like, well, you know, look at your process, right? Exactly. Don't, you know, don't be surprised. And, um, well, our CEO has written a book called Top Grading for Sales. I don't know if you've ever heard about it. He yeah, yeah, yeah. Conjunction with Brad Smart, right? So one of the great phrases he had there is the erroneous assumption that bad breath is better than no breath. And that, um, and the, that is sort of, yes, why? Because people feel like they, they put a gun to their heads and say, you better hurry up to themselves. Right. And, and so they, and, and they do that because what they have not done is calculate what's called the cost of mishire. And the cost of mishire is just a, a quantitative way to sure. express what is it, what does it cost me when I have a C player in the role? And yeah, I mean, I've seen anywhere from four to seven times the salary for yes. a sales rep. That's exactly correct for their OTE. Yeah, so, right. so it's the opposite. You're, 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 they're thinking, okay, I've got an OTE of 250,000. He should sell 10 X that. So it's quote of two and a half million or whatever. In reality, what they're thinking is look about, they're going to cost you a million and a half just by hiring the wrong person. It's the opposite. And so the spread between what you want to get, which is the two and a half million between what you might get, which is the lost one and a half million dollars worth of sales. That's a set three and a half million dollar spread. So that's the difference between a C player and a player. So right. take your time. And have the right process that will make sure that the end result is the person that's going to be wildly successful. And so how do you, when you get into that, and this is another thing that, that's a big thing for me, is what do you recommend for people in terms of verifying claims that are on a resume? Because, you know, to me, this is, you know, obviously it's rampant that people stretch the truth on, on resumes. 
especially in sales jobs, because it's hard to really go back and validate. How do you, how do you do that? I mean, yeah. what's the advice you give people to do that effectively? Well, there's, there are some great tips in the top grading uh, methodology um, that Brad Smart uh, occasion in which we have our sales variant of. Uh, and I'll just give you a couple of, for instance, sure. references. So we don't ask for uh, the, we don't ask for the, the uncle, the aunt and the best friend that come on the reference check. We actually ask them for two sets of references. The one set is their bosses, the last three bosses. And that's the only person we'll sell it for. Mm-hmm. And if they can't, if they can't reference their boss, that's, there's no play. Plus, would sometimes we ask for uh, the lowest administrator that they can think of in their organization. Mm-hmm. Somebody who worked, who was four levels down, who, who worked for them. And then again, that's testing how do you treat others, if you will, right. as, well as, as well as how can you produce for your, for your boss? Because there's some people who will get their bosses swear by them, but do so by trampling everybody underfoot. Right. right? So you want sort of the vertical and, the, and the, uh, both levels of verticality. That's one way to do it. Another way is we have them present their, their W-2s. And see what you've earned the last three years. Mm-hmm. You can cut right through the noise right then. Uh, and there are several other techniques like that where we're looking for practical evidence. So if it's a consultant, okay, um, we'll actually literally watch them do an analog. Here's here's a spreadsheet. I want to turn turn your video monitor around. I want to see you analyze the data. We'll right. do it in real time on a go to meeting. Right. Okay, we're going to watch them their thought process in action. We actually had somebody years ago who, who outsourced the analysis of a, of a, of a, some, a data file we gave them and got a hundred percent on all the scores that we had with them. And we hired him aboard and then he's, and it was a disaster. It was, what is going on? And it wasn't until Zeg's interview that he came clear with what he did. And I'm thinking, why would you do that? I mean, why would you, knowing that you had all these other attributes, knowing that you were, right. that, job you're going into and you just no accounting for what some people do some of the time. So. Knowing we'll find out eventually, which always happens. Yep. So always happens. But timing of reference checks, because this is a big thing for me is, is I think that you need to reference check early in the process before you fall in love with candidates. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's to me, it's a qualifier. It's not a final benediction. You'll give a rep, you know, based on some soft reference you're going to get is, is I want to do reference checks actually before I bring them in for the first, you know, management interview. So we don't do that, but we, we do that in a different way. Here's how okay. we do it. Sure. We, it's called TORC. T-O-R-C is actually a trademark term of track upgrading, threat of reference check. Um, and that, that occurs early in, early in the process. And so, um, so if, you're, if you're part of, if you're a candidate and you're sort of, you get past that initial screening interview and you're in the pipeline, if you will, when you're, when you're talking to one of us, say, oh, by the way, if you get through all these things that we're doing, like the, the analysis uh, assessment and then the, the job trial and then interview with the, and then we, we put them on, on site with clients many times. If you get through all that stuff, we're going to do a referral interview, not a referral check. It's an actual live interview and it's an interview with your bosses. So mm-hmm. are you able to give us the last three bosses, names and phone numbers, and will they be willing to have an hour long conversation with us? Can you check now? So at that point in time, a handful of them will pull themselves out of the process. And so you save them. So in a way, we don't actually do the referral then. We do it at the end. Sure. But, but we make sure that we, we, uh, we let them know that if you can't produce those bosses, then there's no need to go any further. And so do you have some, one sort of key sort of, I don't know, killer question that you ask the bosses that uh, you sort of rely on? We have a series of questions, and um, and there's one question I'll give you that's a killer question. So, uh, I'll, and and this question is important because oftentimes a boss, even if they want to be garrulous and and sort of very positive about the person, sometimes is constrained by what the company says you can say about a former right. employee, right. no matter how they left them, good terms or bad terms or any terms. And the it, the question goes something like this: If you were managing that person again, 
mm-hmm. if you were in the position, w- how would you manage them? I don't remember right. the exact ones, but it's something like that. So it puts them in the saddle as though they were a manager and allows them to comment on the past. And it's you're not asking them to criticize the employee or whatever. You're saying, okay, how would I manage that person? So you're asking them about their activities, which of course are just an implicit extension of the gaps and or competencies of the individual that you're talking about. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because that's, that's a variant of the question that, that I use, which is, if you were to give advice to the person who's going to be managing this individual. Oh, yeah, there you go. Right? What would you tell them? Exactly. Yeah, yeah basically the same question. Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent question. All right. Well, let's talk about onboarding because uh, this is given short shrift so often. Oh, my goodness, yes. Organizations. So um, what are best practices? I mean, what, what are you seeing that good companies do? Let's say EMC, maybe. Hopefully, they did a good job. But there are other clients that you work with. Um, yeah, EMC did an okay job. And I'll tell you what, I mean, this is something I have a passion about. And if, if I can be so bold as to direct your, your listenership to our website, salesbenchmarkindex.com, sure, I've, written three, I've written three or four articles specifically on this issue, best practices and onboarding sales and marketing people. Okay. So, um, and there's chalk full of it. So I'll just rip off a couple, but there's 10 times that I have available on these couple articles, all that you can get for the low, low price of free. Um, Great price. So, yeah, exactly. Indeed. So a couple of things you should, there, there should be a tool that you help, uh, helps you. We use a tool called Asana, A-S-A-N-A. It's a right. cloud-based tool. It's self-service. It's all self-service. That's number one. Number two, you should put somebody very senior in charge. So I'm a partner in the firm and I run onboarding. Every single employee that comes in our firm is spends four months having a one hour a week call with me and having me oversee their onboarding process. Okay. That's how much how much metal we put behind it. Now, many companies can't afford that. So for them, what we recommend is the sales manager. The sales manager should be held accountable for the success of the onboarding process. Which oftentimes, sales managers and or marketing managers or whatever say, hey, you know, that person's on their own. Have a nice day. Sink or swim. I'm off to other things. Yeah, what, what's HR doing, right? Exactly. It's, HR's, right. it's HR's responsibility. So we totally look at that the opposite. We integrate the uh, content of which we have a pretty massive learning management system with lots of very stylized and customized content. We integrate mm-hmm. that both in terms of the to the role specifically. So we have role-specific learning paths as well as to their stage of development, first, second, third, and fourth month. So all these, so it's tightly interwoven and there's a really uh, a virtue loop between what are you learning, what are you coaching, what are you demonstrating, what are you getting good at? Mm-hmm. Um, we take seriously a lot of the sort of, uh, we have a thing called a personal dossier, which is a combination of everything from your ideal life. We actually have, uh, we, we ask employees to document what they want for the current and the, in the, in the midterm future in their personal lives, intensely personal questions. And then we merge that with their professional aspirations at a longer term level. Again, Clayton Christensen. Right. So more goal oriented on their personal. Goal yeah. But in an intimate detail, much more intimate than people are used to dealing with a company. And the such, reason is that as... oh, everything from their, their friendships, their hobbies, um, things that are really because we recognize, we believe in work-life integration. We do not believe in work-life balance. We think the sort of zero-sum game approach of work-life balance is fundamentally misleading and causes conflict, both from the business side and the personal side. And so by re- recognizing that life intrudes into work and work intrudes into life, right. that, we, that we have them go through this exercise. And that personal dossier includes that, includes a tour of duty, which is an artifact that comes from the alliance process. And then an individual development plan, which is like a quarterly set of action items that you have to execute against to kind of take one bite of the elephant at a time. And the tour of duty is what? Tour of duty is, an, is a, a so typically most 
roles go for about three years. And this is okay. one of the breakthroughs that, that Reed Hoffman had, which is, all right, a tour of duty says, what am I going to commit to you? And what are you going to commit to me over three years? Right. And then after that, we're going to pick our heads up and figure out what we're going to do. And the reality is most companies sort of figure that whoever they hire on day one is going to stay in that job for the rest of their life. And that's just not reality. Yeah. And so people leave voluntarily otherwise three, four years later because they say, where's the there there? You know, sure. and so we, we force it to this tour of duty to make sure everybody understands. And that matches the whole military concept of a tour of duty. Yeah. An enlistment period. Exactly. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's interesting. So that personal that. dossier becomes a development document. Yeah. No, I like that idea of the tour of duty. I think that that is, that is, yeah. I hadn't read that book, but I, I, I'll put that down and read that. That's, that's very clever. It is. Because, it yeah, there's no guarantee as companies want to assume that people are going to be, still be a fit for what they need, need three years down the road or four years down the road, whatever, right? Exactly. And here, what you're saying is, yeah, we're going to set the ground rules so that really the commitment's done at the end of three years. And we can both part ways and we're happy. Exactly correct. If that's, if that's indeed what makes sense, or there's another opportunity, or they commit to another three-year tour in the same position, any of those things are options. But at a minimum, we, we set, the employee knows, hey, there's, there, you, you set a gun to your head because you want to develop, you want to grow, you want to improve. You're just not treading water because our company is constantly moving. One thing, we are relentlessly innovative so that if you just stay in place, you're going to be behind. Right. Well, it's true a lot of companies, right? So- mm-hmm. Yeah, the assumption is if I do a good enough job in three years, let's say, of my tour of duty in this position, yeah, there's no guarantee that we need that same three years doing the exact same thing, exact same thing, excuse me, in three years from now. Right. Yeah. And that happens sometimes. Somebody comes in perfectly happy and acceptable in the position as it is, and the position gets redefined because we're chasing a different, different kettle of fish, and suddenly they need to change or else there isn't an opportunity just because the company's changed, the buyers right. change. All right. So last, la- I really like that. So last, last part I wanted to get into just briefly is sales training. So we've onboarded people and now we're sort of managing through this tour of duty. And again, seems to be a huge disconnect between perception of what sales training should do and what it actually ends up doing. A lot of dissatisfaction at the CEO level about investments in sales training. Yeah, as you as you acknowledge that with your eyebrows there. Sure. So um, what's the solution? Well, for so this US sales, let's keep it on the sales focus. The reality is is when people complain about sales training, more often than not, what they're complaining about with realizing it is they don't have coaching. They think that, and, and if you look at any even the best experts in L and D will tell you that, hey, I can train you on a topic. And you can be smart about it. And I can make it a hundred question test, like a bar exam or whatever. And I can make a 50% failure rate and emerging out of that test, you're going to have a good category of people going to be really smart in that area. And that, that intelligence will degrade over time if it's not reinforced. Right. And most people don't connect the training with the coaching. They're sort of on disparate paths. And that when you, especially when you have an independent L and D department with independent trainers who are not even part of the business function, like sales, that, that uh, tendency to split is accentuated. Mm-hmm. And so there's virtually no connection in some cases between the coaching function, which is all about reinforcement, enablement, repetition, uh, extension, development, and the actual training, which is about a, typically awareness. In some cases, you can get more advanced forms of trainings like role plays and scenarios. But even those require somebody with subject matter, subject matter expertise, which rolls back to the sales manager or the sales operations or sales executive. 
And so when we go into companies, if we're in, typically it's around a process initiative, we are going to go re, reform some aspect of process, territory design, it could be account planning, it could be um, a sales process, mm-hmm. any of those different things. And we say, okay, there's going to be a training component, but it's got to be twinned with ongoing coaching and reinforcement. And sometimes we have to coach the coaches because sometimes they've developed bad habits or they don't even have any habits. Right. And we need to let them know, here's what a good coach looks like. Here's how a sales manager coaches, not how a sales manager manages, but how a sales manager coaches. Right. A different core skill set, and it has to be learned. And a lot of people yeah. think, snap your, you know, snap your fingers, click your heels, and suddenly you're a great coach, and that's just not reality. No, no, it's a different set of skills. One's very directive. One is, you know, driven by empathy and and other yeah. facets. And the sports world provides a lot of great analogies for us. Um, a lot of salespeople tend to be great sports fans, and making them understand, look, the great players don't make the great coaches, and vice versa necessarily. Like, well, what makes a great coach? Okay, here's what makes a great coach. And then you tell them all the time it takes. Most people think of coaching as an afterthought. The thing that I squeeze in for one and a half hours a week. It's like, no, no, no. Coaching's 20, 25% of your managerial life. And if you, in, and if you don't understand that, you're always going to be super repping all the time. You're going to be the, the, the senior rep on every deal. Right. And, and so and you sometimes, with many people, hopefully you have that breakthrough and they finally get it. And they have sort of have that that investment of in themselves, which will then mean a series of 80 hour work weeks for a while. And then suddenly life will get much easier for them, but they have to recognize that they have to do their day job and become a great coach so that they can get to the position of truly causing leverage across their team. Right. All right. Great. So now Mike, we're in the last segment of the show. I've got some standard questions. I ask all my guests and the first one is a hypothetical scenario. You Mike, have just been hired as VP of sales at a company whose sales have stalled out. And time to hit the reset button, see okay. go forward, anxious to do it. So what two things could you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? Uh, well, the first is to make sure that I've got a multi-million dollar consultancy budget to hire SBI. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. That, <laughs> Sorry, that's you funny. walked right that's, in. That's funny. That's the first time I've gotten that answer. <laughs> well, that's, you know, and honestly, this is, so this, uh, and so let me be honestly serious. If I'm, if, if I'm interviewing, if, and this is, uh, we do this quite seriously. If I'm a VP of sales interviewing the CEO for a job, I'm going, one of the key questions we ask them is ask the CEO, what's the budget for third-party services? And the reason is very simple. You can't be expected to solve every problem yourself. Because you, why? Because you walk into that, to that environment with only what you know, only right. what you've been successful at. It's a set of performance conditions, largely of which, which were imposed upon you by your previous employer employers. And now you're walking into a new set of performance conditions. Well, and I, I, I was going to say, the interesting question and challenge that comes out of that, because I think it's a great, a great comment, is that you know, so often when they hire new sales VPs, companies in, in situations like this, they look at them as the savior, right? They know all. Yes, they know yeah, all. They know all. And so suddenly that person, because I've run into these people all the time, but, you know, sort of a trigger event, hey, now's the time to be spending money. Is like, no, I can't tell them I don't, I need help because they hired me to be the expert. Right. And they did that because when they were in the process, they didn't hit the CEO with the question. And this is why I said, look, you're not going to be happy because... You, if you try to take what you did in the past and impose on this company, you're going to be taking a square peg and fitting a round hole. I mean, some things will work, some things will kind of work, and some things won't work at all. Right. And that's why a third party is helpful because they come in with this vast, broad exposure to all the different performance conditions and all the different things that work and don't work. And they can give you an adjusted, modified, they can take all the ideas that you have and just take them in and tweak them where necessary. And they can give you what will most likely be successful. So if a, so you can, 
Well, I was going to say, if a CEO or board was, was interested in that approach, should they spend that money before hiring this person? Yeah, that, that, is, a, that is a fundamental question. And the answer is, it depends. Uh, okay. And it depends because um, at a minimum, the person they should be hiring should be involved at a certain point in time, typically at the sort of late stages of design, because you don't want to necessarily um, be forced to inherit the design conditions that are being imposed upon you. The, the, the best would be if the person is hired right at about the same time that the consultancy is hired because they can learn together Got it. and they can have this mutual fruitful uh, interaction. Because if you, if the person comes aboard and, and spends 90 days and then hires a consulting, oftentimes they've already sort of formed their opinions right. and they've done so. They're only one person. And they, again, they only form those opinions based on what they know. And sometimes those opinions are well-founded, sometimes not so much. And so sometimes when you bring the consultancy and they spend up some of their time trying to disabuse you of some of the conclusions you've reached and that, right. that causes pain along the way. Yeah. So, so the best would be to hire them roughly in conjunction and then have them sort of do the design and the validation and the hypothesis testing together. Right. And, and then reach sort of the solution or the set of changes or whatever it's going to be together. And then the implementation and then and eventually uh, that consultancy should move on to other things in the company, possibly move from sales to marketing, from marketing to product, you know, to product, to customer service, whatever. But um, you want to you want to give the organization time to internalize some of those changes, especially if they're really structural and strategic. Okay. All right. Well, that's a good answer. We'll, we'll go with that one. So okay. some rapid fire questions for it to sort of wrap things up. You can be one word answers or you can elaborate if you wish. So the first one is when you Mike, are out selling mm-hmm. your services, what's your most powerful sales attribute? Well, I, first of all, I can't close the barn door. So uh, I'm not a salesman. I'm more of a sort of a best practices guy. Uh, and my, I guess my most powerful tool is um, my, um, straightforwardness, which sometimes can come off uh, just this side of abrasive. But for those who are willing to receive it, uh, if they enjoy the truth telling, and and then that can be a powerful asset because I I tell them some of the things they don't want to hear. And sometimes the people in the organization are afraid to do that. Right. Okay. Well, that's the role of a consultant after all. So who's your sales role model? Uh, the CEO, Greg Alexander. Okay. And just slightly below him, Matt Shares, who is the world's greatest rainmaker uh, and a, a person I'm privileged to, to call partner. Okay. What's one book you'd recommend every salesperson read? Besides anyone's written by SBI. Of course. Yeah, of course. We've written our own, Making the Number, as well as Top right. Grading for Sales. Um, and I think for those who are involved in complex B2B selling, which is sort of in there, sure. in the, I think the challenge is sale. The I'm sorry, the challenger customer, not the challenger sale, the challenger customer, I, which has I, which has some I, very provocative concepts in it. I agree. I think it's a better book than the challenger sale. Much, much, much better book. Yeah. Uh, and they sort of got it right on the second time around. So well done. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And had Brent Adamson on the show a couple months ago. And yeah, excellent book. Really enjoyed it. All right. So last question for you. This is a tough one here is so what music's on your playlist right now? Oh gosh, I'm an '80s child, so everything from REM to Guadalcanal Diary to uh, oh, to and Beethoven. I mean, every every progressive band that lived and died in the '80s is on my playlist, and my children, I am thoroughly musically ossified. Yeah, well, Guadalcanal Diary. I hadn't heard that name for 20 years. There you go. I saw him in concert many a time. I'm from the South, so yeah, I spent time in Georgia, so that's where they're from, Athens. Yeah, well, that REM, of course, you need to have and so on. Okay. All right. Excellent. Well, good answer. I love that one. So, well, Mike, thank well, you. <laughs> thanks for being on the show. Tell people they can find out more about you or connect with you about uh, SBI. 
Sure. Uh, for, for those interested, which I hope is everybody in the uh, the the, uh, the enterprise uh, selling space for B two B marketing, B two B selling, and B two B product management, find us at salesbenchmarkindex.com. Where I think you'll find we are about the largest provider of free sales marketing and product content in the world. And we do so in four forms. We have a podcast, which we do weekly. We have a printed magazine, which we ship for free with no commercials every other month. We have a daily blog and we have a TV show. And we funnel all that content through an app that you can download on YouTube. I'm not sorry, YouTube, on uh, the Apple um, the Apple Store. Mm-hmm. And it is... Um, it is our value add. So you can take all of our emerging best practices and you can apply them yourselves if you want. And you don't even have to tell us you're doing it. And that's sort of our give back to the industry. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, it's good stuff. I've spent time there myself. So thank you, uh, Mike. Appreciate you being on the show. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And easy way to do that is make this podcast accelerate part of your daily routine. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest, Mike Drapeau, who shared his expertise with how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales. We're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.